as a pastor or staff member of a church. It is common to experience compassion fatigue and find that you spend so much time caring for others, you're not caring for yourself. Saga wants to help foster healthy churches by facilitating the support of the emotional, mental, and relational health of their leaders. As a partner of Saga, pastors and staff can confidently and easily begin their journey by being uniquely matched to a therapist that best fits their needs. To learn more about a church partnership with Saga, go to sagacenter.org. That's S-A-G-A center.org. Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, welcome to Leading Simple. I'm your host, Rusty George. Today, we bring back one of our favorite guests, the detective Jim Wallace, is sharing with us more insight into apologetics, the crucifixion as a crime scene, and what it's like to be on Dateline. I love this guy. You've probably seen him before. If you've heard any of our podcasts with him before, you know how fantastic he is. But he just brings such a unique perspective. As a former cold case investigator, now turned Christian and apologist, he uses his cold case detective skills to investigate the claims of Jesus and finds there's tremendous truth in them. Hey, this is going to be a podcast that not only educates you and edifies your faith, it's going to be one of those you want to share with somebody because they just bring so much wisdom. You're going to love this as well as the people that you choose to share it with. So make sure that you subscribe, make sure that you share this with somebody. And here in a moment, we're going to hear from Detective Jay Warner Wallace. Well, I want to thank our friends from Saga for sponsoring the podcast this month. They do such an incredible job of helping you get connected with a counselor. We have sent so many of our staff and parishioners to Saga, and they've always been so, so grateful. So make sure that you check them out, sagacenter.org, S-A-G-A, center, C-E-N-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Okay, here's my conversation with Detective Jim Wallace. Jay Warner Wallace, a.k.a. Jim, a.k.a. Detective. Uh, It's always good to have you on the podcast. Buddy, I am so grateful for you. Uh, We met years ago, and uh, I think we got connected because of a a friend of mine in Kentucky named Brian Marshall, who had you out to speak to his college students and said, you got to get this guy in, and we have, and we've met several times now, a couple times in person, a couple times on podcast. Thank you for joining us again. Yeah, glad to do it. That's true. I forgot that's how we first got connected. Yeah, exactly. That's been been a fun association. I'm really glad to be back on your podcast. Yeah. Well, uh, I think the last time we talked was during the COVID year. We were all locked down and uh, we spoke via podcast for our uh, our Road to Easter series. So how have you been? Uh, It's been a wild uh, three years. So tell me about what's going on in your world and and ministry, and, and how are you finding God's using you right now? Well, I think that, you know, there's seasons for everything, right? So I, when, when you're in certain decades of your life, you, you feel like you're called to different things. And I, I always think that one of the biggest mistakes we can make is to think that every decade is the same as the last, or that whatever it was we were doing that God was using us for in some past you know, part of our life is this, the same going forward. And I think as men, because we identify with our work, it's really hard for us to let go of our work is like we're kind of letting go of who we are. 
Mm. And so I've just had to learn as you get older that you have to kind of recreate yourself, recreate, you know, what your role is, where, where God can best use you. And sometimes that's, that's, you know, right here in your own house. It doesn't have to be, you know, in writing books or what all the things I've been doing in the past. So I, I just kind of see this transition. And I think when you're in your 50s, you, you find yourself really wanting to be uh, more um, courageous and, and you know, you're, you're constantly, if somebody called me and said, would you come across the planet to, to do something? You'd say yes. As you get to your 60s, you feel like, hey, there's some wisdom here and, and just um, stepping back a bit, and especially as I've got grandchildren coming, that, that now it's time to leverage the wisdom side of this rather than just the constant busyness that we find ourselves in when we're in the middle of a career. Mm. And even though I came out of my career and started you know, working in, as an apologist, um, I, I'm not looking for another career. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out where is it that God um, would want to, want to use us. And so, yeah, things are changing. For example, in the last two years, a lot of our work has shifted from making the case for Christianity, which I still do, of course, and I'm still writing about that stuff. Um, but I'm also working with uh, law enforcement couples that are suffering, their marriages are troubled, and, and they've suffered either through trauma, injury, um, all kinds of different things. And they, uh, I've been partnering with Billy Graham Association on their marriage resiliency retreats. That's a lot of our work now. It's six full weeks a year that we just spend with couples. So, you know, you have certain seasons. So I would say, you know, I'm still writing. I have another book I'm finishing right now. But a lot of this is shifting toward kind of the the wise, you know, the kind of grandfatherly wise years you have in your 60s and 70s. I want to ask you about that because uh, we've talked about that with some people on the podcast before, especially in law enforcement. They live at this high level of adrenaline, uh, oftentimes throughout the day. Sometimes not so much, but sometimes it's you know it's full alert. They go into a situation, they don't know what's going to happen, and then they're expected to have the adrenaline calm down before they go home interact with their family in a loving and kind way, and then go back the next day and do it all over again. And I think that that is a microcosm of what the rest of our world has experienced over the last three years of adrenaline of, you know, what, what tragedy is going to happen next. Right. Um, how are you helping couples that are living kind of on the front lines of this be able to uh, deal with this vicarious trauma that so many people pick up along the way. I mean, what are some skill sets you're finding are helpful? Well, I, I can tell you that it's 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 a, it's a actually a crisis that, that the country is not going to realize for a couple of gener maybe one generation. Mm -hmm. We'll we'll figure it out. So what happens is when, when an officer does something that's that's absolutely reprehensible, and we've seen that, mm -hmm. where somebody will do something that every, every officer who's working would flinch at as well and say, "Oh my gosh, what's going? What, what in the world is he thinking?" Right. Well, that makes national headlines, and it's an immediate impact on culture, and all kinds of shifts occur. Suddenly, there's new DAs being elected all over the country. There's entirely new ways of applying the law. Everything changes overnight. Mm. But when officers say, okay, you know what? It's time for us just to pull back, and we're going to be more reactive than proactive because, man, we can't do anything proactively that won't get punished. So we're just going to, you know, if you need us, call us. Happy to take the report. You know, there are no patrol firemen. Mm -hmm. Those are all reactive positions. Mm -hmm. But they used to think that police officers are proactive. We're supposed to have patrol cars whose our very presence is supposed to suppress crime. The presence of firemen does not suppress fire. Mm. So it's a proactive job. If you treat it like a reactive job, you will not see the immediate consequences for about a generation. And then you look around and say, what happened to our city? Mm. Because you removed the ability that law enforcement has always had. Mm. And as police officers, there's gonna to have to be a generational shift 
because there's still a bunch of people you hired five years ago who thought the job was to go out and patrol and work proactively but now that you know they aren't allowed to do that or they are allowed but they're punished if they do you know why are you stopping me well that's because you you hired me <laughs> i mean the role is i am supposed to proactively make sure bad things don't happen but if that's been removed from police officers you're going to need about a generation for the new type of officer to get in place who's not troubled by that mm-hmm. who's not you know it's a different kind of person you're hiring mm-hmm but the stuff that we're working with is really officers who have been involved in terrible um, events that that were no fault of their own. Mm. We had an officer last year, for example, who was hit by a drunk driver, and you know his life was forever. He's now had you know dozens of surgeries, and uh, he's miserable and pain all the time. And of course, his marriage suffered. Mm-hmm. So, what, how do you help these folks who have suffered those kinds of crises? Mm. And so, I, I think that that so part of it is that you've got a lot of folks who are stuck in a job that, that is grossly underpaid, mm-hmm. that no human should have to do anyway, that for the most part is underappreciated. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so funny. Officers respond so positively for the, to the least amount of encouragement because they don't get it anywhere. So they're so hungry for it that if you just encourage them, you know, remind them of how important this is. There's only, the, the word used for minister is only used about two for two groups. It's it's pastors and ministers, and it's police officers in Romans thirteen. Mm-hmm. Those are the two places you see that Greek word being used. Mm. And so, as a title, you know, you are you know, it really translates into servant. But the point is, we we translate it in either minister. And in Romans thirteen, it's applied to those who are who are peacekeepers, who are who are you know uh, working as a representation of of, of peacekeepers. Mm. So. I think if we just remind officers the value of their role, and here's how I always say it, I always say it this way, look, there's only one necessary profession upon which every other profession is contingent, and that is law enforcement. Mm. You can't have anybody else in place, doctors, even firemen, Mm. until you have someone there to keep the order, Mm. because your doctor's gonna get robbed by his next patient, not if there's a police officer in place. That's why every place in America starts off, the first thing you do is you hire a sheriff. Mm-hmm. You had volunteer fire departments, but you had a paid sheriff. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, because this is the one necessary profession upon which everything else is contingent. Mm. But officers don't even know there or think about it, think of it that way. And what that means for us is not a position of privilege. You know, the foundation of your house is necessary. Everything else is built on top of that. But you don't even think about your foundation until something cracks. Mm-hmm. So for a lot of us, you know, the foundation is the thing you walk on, spit on, mistreat until it breaks. And that's kind of who we are, right? So expect that. You're not going to get any respect. You're not going to get paid anything. But right. but you are going to be foundational. That encourages you mm-hmm. to suffer through the things because you know without you, your city doesn't run. And so this is why it's important for us to keep on encouraging police officers. Encouragement goes a long ways. What are some simple ways? I mean, when we hear of somebody that served in the military, it's common for us to say, thank you for your service. Is that an appropriate phrase for a police officer? Is it buying their coffee when they're standing behind us? Uh, what's the, the best way to really encourage uh, uh, a police officer? Well, well, practically a couple of things. You know, Number one, uh, you don't need to buy them their coffee. Most of us aren't allowed to accept those kinds of gratuities anyway. Okay. So, so that that's probably not necessary. But but your words matter. But even more importantly, uh, we have to stop voting 
for people. You have to vote for your priorities. And I think that law enforcement, we are discouraged more hmm. by district attorneys that are now elected in these major cities that are making a mess of law. Hmm. We have one in Los Angeles County. I mean, this is somebody who has to be removed from office. <laughs> I'm not a political person. I don't think of myself as a political animal. I don't want to be making a, a statement here. But the reality of it is that George Gascon has ruined this, this county. I only know that because I work so deeply with the district attorneys, the, the deputy DAs in that office. So I'm listening to them constantly. Mm. Uh, people don't realize what's happening, but you will in a generation. Mm. And then it'll be irreversible. So that's why I think it's important for us. To, I don't. I'm not. I don't care what side of the, the, the aisle you might be on. Law enforcement, when properly done, I'm all for that. If you've got a bad law enforcement agency, you've got a bad foundation. Everything's going to crack. Mm -hmm. So if we have a good law enforcement uh, community, then we need to support them with your vote. It's not about voting more money for us. <laughs> it's not about. Make sure you've got district attorneys in place who will actually enforce the law. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a, a huge because what's happening now is that I've seen in Los Angeles County, for example, officers are so incredibly discouraged by the fact you can take people to jail for things that are just horrific, and they are released pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the problems we see over and over again, is either they aren't charged at all, no enhancements are charged, or they're just released. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's, there's a sense that that the inequality we've seen socially. Mm is to be remedied with just a lack of enforcement. Mm -hmm. I think we have to deal with the inequalities, but lack of enforcement is not the way to deal with them mm -hmm. because that just, that means you don't care anymore about victims. Right. You have to always balance that, you know, victims and perpetrators. Well, I care about both, but I cannot care about perpetrators to the expense of victims or vice versa. So it's holding those two things in balance. Oh, that's so well said. Okay, let's, let's get into your, uh, uh, your field of study over the last few years. Uh, you were a. Uh, yeah, now that we've alienated everybody who is uh, who's not for law enforcement, so maybe we have to cut that first part out altogether so we can actually talk about the things that do matter, which is Jesus of Nazareth. And I'll tell you, if it wasn't for if it wasn't for the uh, the COVID year that last time you and I talked, I, this book wouldn't have got written. So, so a lot of the books I write are this things that I researched for five years, ten years, and then I finally wrote a book about it. Well, tell us about this book. Yeah, this is different. This is one that I had like a blogger's sense. I mean, I did the research, but not to the level it's necessary to write a book because you want sources. You want to know all. How, so this has got, this is a book that is, I think it's very accessible. It's not written as an academic book. But if you're interested, there are the resources and there's 50 pages of footnotes mm. in the book and another 270 pages online. Wow. Uh, in the book, I think it reads more like a crime drama, like a true crime drama. But the idea here is that we took a look at Jesus without the New Testament. So hmm. there's many ways to make a case. You're looking at the stuff that's in the crime scene. And you also look at all the stuff that is, was never in the crime scene, but is part of your case proper in front of a jury. And those two things go together when you make a case in front of a jury. Hmm. And I've had a number of cases where there's nothing in the crime scene to begin with. Uh, these are like no-body murders are a good example of that, where someone kills his wife and then claims that she ran off mm -hmm. and then uh, doesn't report it for a week. When he finally does report it, he reports it as a missing person. I get the case 30 years later. There's no, no, no evidence was ever collected. It was never worked as a homicide. So now what do I do? I got nothing in the crime scene. Well, you make those cases with everything that's outside the crime scene. 
So this is what this book does. It's, it takes a look at everything you could know about Jesus if there wasn't a single New Testament manuscript available to you. Mm. That's the thought experiment here. And, and it turns out you would know everything that you know now if there was if every single New Testament manuscript, papyrus, and document was utterly destroyed because you can recover it just from the history of humanity. Wow. So what we do is we talk about how every crime scene is like a bomb that goes off, and that bomb is going to be, you know, someone's temper gets to the point where they do something stupid, and every bomb has got a fuse that burns up to a detonation, and after it explodes, you've got shrapnel and debris all over the crime, you know, all of the, all of the uh, blast radius. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens with Jesus as well. You have, there's, a, there's something we call the first century, which in fact is not the first century. There's a lot of centuries before the first century, but we're calling that the first century for a reason. Whether you call it BCE and CE, or you call it BC and AD, doesn't matter. There's something you're calling the first century, and you're calling it that for a reason. So what is the fuse that burns up to the first century? And then what does all the blast radius stuff tell you about after the first century? It turns out if you do nothing about the first century, you could figure out why we call it the first century from simply looking at the fuse and the fallout. Wow. So this is a book which I just assemble the evidences and the fuse and the fallout. And the evidences and the fuse are things like the history of culture and Roman Empire leading up to the first century, the history of mm -hmm. spirituality and all the mythologies that were developed up to the first century, and also the history of prophecy in the Jewish scriptures and what they point to in the first century. And all the fallout is all the ways that Jesus, unlike any other person in the history of persons, has impacted literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions. Hmm. Those six things were forever changed, not just for those of us in the West, hmm. but for everyone on planet Earth mm -hmm. because of Jesus of Nazareth. Somebody who, if you think about it, is an unlikely candidate for having that kind of influence in the first century. So that's what this book is really about. Do we have a title yet? No, that book, this book I've already written. This book's already out there. This is Person of Interest. Oh, okay, okay. So I wrote this book on there in that COVID year, and I tell you, we would not have had I it. thought this was the one you're working. Okay. No, the one I'm working on right now is we're calling it, right now tentatively is called Chasing Leads. This is a little different, but this is 15 rules for life that you learn from investigating death. And all of these rules for life also highlight an attribute of human nature that is only really most robustly described in Scripture. Is one of those rules, the husband is always the one who did it? <laughs> yeah, sadly. Because it, yeah. it seems like that seems to be the norm, right? Yeah, well, I'll talk, I talk about this in one of the chapters of this new book, because I call this the proximity principle. So when you, when you work in a homicide, you can imagine there's a, the, the day of the murder, the, the killer is in very close proximity to the, to, the, to the victim. I mean, probably standing right next to him, mm -hmm. because that's how murders occur usually. Mm -hmm. So they are in close proximity. So you can work investigations like this by simply working the proximities. Mm -hmm. In other words, imagine your victim is in the center of the bullseye, and you have concentric circles from there. Mm -hmm. Well, the first circle of proximity is relational. And so you're asking, what are the, what are the victim's most intimate relationships? Because that's probably where they got killed. Mm -hmm. And for most of us, that's our spouse. Mm -hmm. Or it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But if there's no one in that concentric circle that fits the description, then you're going out one layer. Mm -hmm. Well, who are their friends? Who are their co-workers? So you're just moving outward in the concentric circle of relationships. And if you run through all of those and there's nobody that's got a relation, uh, relational proximity, well, then you're looking for a, geogra a geographic proximity. Well, who lives next door? Mm. Who do they work with? Who's, where's, you know, 
And, and when you expend all of those and you've got no answers, and I've got one of those as well. I had one from 1972 where a girl was just killed, snatched off the street from somebody who was just driving through our town, has no proximity either relationally or geographically to the victim or the family. Mm. Those take, for, that was a 1972 case we solved in 2019. Wow. So those cases take a lot longer to solve because I don't have the proximity principle working for me. Right. <laughs> right. Right. It, you know, it, it turns out that that proximity principle is also a helpful rule for living, though, because who you allow into your circle matters. Your relationships <laughs> are not just tangential. Your relationships are primary because who are you going to let in that circle? Right. You know, I always say as a detective that I have a very tight circle around whom I draw you know, I draw that tight circle around who, who I'm willing to cry for. Hmm. So I have my immediate family in that circle. I have, uh, I have my, my dog died a couple, about a couple, two months ago. We had her for 13 years. She was in that circle for sure. Hmm. My cat is not in that circle. So <laughs> The cat's so in no one's that, circle. <laughs> that's right. So that means, though, is if, I've, if, if, Rusty, if you got shot, I could work your case because I've made sure... If your kids got hurt, I could work that case. If my neighbor's kids got hurt, I could work that case. Why? Because they're not in my circle. I hate that. That's terrible, right? Because it means you have to be at least emotionally detached yep. enough to run an investigation. Or guess what? No one gets investigated. Right. So what, what Christ is asking me to do is to open my circle and reconsider who I've constricted the circle around. But, but I know that as a kind of a, a way of, of working for so many years, working homicides, that I've just tightened the circle too, too tight. And most of us, when we retire, one of the things we struggle with is we've just constricted this to the point where only a few people are in it. And as we get older, they're dying. And then you find yourself alone. So it's important for us at least to think about that. Boy, isn't that the case of COVID, though? I mean, what we experienced in 2020 realized... Boy, we really do miss people. We are not created to be alone. But this all goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And we desperately need each other. The question is, who gets in that circle? And that seems to be the one thing the church has the answer for that no one else is giving an answer for in the fact of biblical community and this idea of having someone to trust, don't you think? It's not just that. You're absolutely right about that, by, by biblical community. But it's, it's, it's also that Christianity has a unique perspective on why it is that under every study you could find, and I did a lot of this this, this last year, um, under every study you can find about human flourishing, how humans thrive, relationships is always at the top. Uh, the longest uh, study, for example, of happiness ever conducted over about six decades it's about your relationships. Well, why would that be the case? Wouldn't it be better from an evolutionary perspective? For Because, you know, life's hard. Have you ever noticed as you get married, now you have two people you are passionately worried about? Not just yourself, your spouse. Then you have kids. And now I've got to worry about my kids. I'm about to have a grandchild. And I'm going to worry about my grand... Like, the more you put on your plate, the more miserable you are just worrying all the time about what could go wrong. <laughs> right? If, you just, if it's just you, like, you can handle that, right? Right. But it turns out the reason why we are, we, are, we are created in the image of our creator. And only under Christianity does this relationship make sense. You know, our scriptures say that God is love. Not that God can teach you how to love or that God is capable of love or God is the source of love. Mm. No, but that God is love. This is not cannot be said of Allah or any other version of God. Because even Allah, if he is loving, he has to learn how to love at the moment he creates beings that he can love. He has no experience of love until he creates a being in which he can have a loving relationship. Unless, of course, you're Yahweh. 
Well, now you're in this triune loving relationship from all eternity. Mm. God is love because God is triune. As Augustine said, the, the love, the lover, the beloved, and the spirit of love between them. Mm. So that is the, the, the why I think the Christian worldview actually explains why all modern research points to relationship as the source of human flourishing. It's because you were created in the image of a, of a, of a creator that is in relationship from all eternity. Mm. So don't be surprised that you actually have those same much of what you discover is that the things you learn, you yearn for, the things you seek, you're seeking because um, you've been baited with it. Yeah. You, you can smell it, you can taste it, but you can't yet grasp it until you're in the presence of God. Mm, so good. Okay, so let me ask you about this. You came to faith uh, how many years ago? Well, I'm 60, give me a 62, I was 35, so 27 years now? 27 years ago, you come to faith, so we're in the mid-90s at that point, Mm -hmm. and you had your own questions. You'd seen your share of violence, you you did your own research, you thought you could disprove God, and through apologetics, you come to faith. We are dealing with an entirely new generation, several new generations since then, that have their own questions about God. And certainly post-COVID, I think we're going to have another kind of iteration of what we're asking, much like after 9-11. Yeah. So what do you, I mean, you work with a lot of students. What are you finding to be their questions versus the questions you had? And Sean McDowell was on this podcast and we talked about you know, the difference between, well, there, there's, there's timeless questions and then timely that are kind of yes. referencing the, the, you know, the area in which we live, which was a brilliant perspective I think the two of you came up with. But yeah. you know, what, are, what are you finding to be the things they're most concerned about uh, versus maybe when you first came to faith? Hey, let me interrupt this podcast for just a second to remind you, if you're not taking care of your mental health, nobody is. Step up and go check out sagacenter.org to find out more. All right, back to our show. Well, okay, so my my answers will probably sound much like Sean's because we do so much work together and we wrote that book so the next generation will know we wrote that book together. So it was kind of our observations together of young people Mm. as we were serving them. So I would say a couple of things. And and, uh, number one, it's not does God exist? Is If there is a God, is he good? That's a big question for a lot of people, right? Because why would God have these types of exclusive uh, feelings toward or um, thoughts about certain groups of people. Why would he treat certain groups this way, especially in a world that's more and more inclusive and has erased definitions of right, wrong, good, or bad? But I think the other thing for me is, and I say this all the time, it's not so much, well, do you have any evidence that God exists? That might be true for when I was you know, younger, but now it's like, do I want to wear this t shirt? Right? Do I want to be associated with this? It's identity. Mm-hmm. If we're in an identity generation, identity, 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 politics, gender identity, everything's about identity. Like, how is it you find yourself? Now, this is this is another chapter of the book that I'm writing right now. Identity is really important, and, and making a decision about where you form and how you form your identity is pivotal to how you're living your life. And a lot of things about human flourishing are based on whether you can appropriate. Here's what's going to happen. Every if you base, you only three ways to form identity. One is inside out. I decide who I am. And we're in that kind of a culture right mm-hmm. now. Whatever I'm thinking is who I am. And then you're going to base your identity on your personal preferences, desires, and thoughts. The other way is outside in. 
and that's where like some cultures especially historic ancient cultures mm. you were a wallace well that's your identity it's a wallace identity or it was your profession a larger outside group i'm a carpenter and or i'm a farmer that became my identity it's an outside in approach now both of those approaches have limitations because let's face it an outside in doesn't give you much kind of creativity or much uh, uh, unique identity and inside out is willy-nilly in the sense that if i change my desires does my identity change and what i've discovered is the points of crisis in your life if you retract them over time the highs and lows most of your lows came at a point where you were struggling with your identity hmm. so for me when i left law enforcement and started you know writing books Thank God I had books to write because I, I struggle with my changing identity. Right. You know, I'm no longer, I'm retired. I never wanted that word associated with my profession. I stayed and worked as a consultant because I didn't want to be thought of as retired. Mm -hmm. You know, what is that about? It's, it's an identity struggle. So it, the, the more that your identity is tied into temporal sources, and that's an outside in or an inside out, the more you're going to struggle with identity changes over the course of your life and the more it's going to challenge your mental health and your anxiety and all the other things that come along with that. Mm -hmm. The third way to form identity is not inside out or outside in. It's downside up. Hmm. It's when I look up for identity because that's a transcendent source that doesn't change over time. And if I can hold on to that, I will never experience the hills and valleys of identity change. Hmm. And that also, makes, that also helps me to know my value. Uh, my son and I are writing a, my son, uh, my oldest son is a big comic book geek, you know, and loves comic books and has been reading them his whole life. And so we had an opportunity uh, next year, we're releasing a graphic novel. But this graphic novel is, uh, it's a Christian idea, but it's not explicitly Christian. It's about a murder series in which um, the victims are increasingly more important to their community. Hmm. We're just trying to examine, well, what makes you important to begin with? Why would you think somebody could be more important to your community to begin with? Mm. Where is identity formed? Is it a matter of outside in? Is what people think of you inside out? What, what makes you important? And that's why we're trying to examine the three ways you form identity, because only one equalizes the field so that there is no ism of either racism or whatever it may be. If we all are, our identity is all together a downside up, well, then we're going to probably get along a lot better, for one. And we're going to know that our, we matter, even if I'm not succeeding mm -hmm. as well as the next guy. Right. Or whatever it may be. So I'm not as pretty as the next girl. Whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. you, you, you won't be forming your identity from the outside in or from the inside out anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think mental health, uh, that's why humans flourish and thrive when they have some type of transcendent identity that transcends time and circumstance. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's let's flesh that out a little bit because to your point about whether or not Christianity is true to whether or not Christianity is good, somebody in the um, identity world that's deriving their identity from who they associate with, sexual preferences, whatever, would say Christianity alienates them or creates some kind of uh, you're not in, I'm in versus uh, us versus them kind of mentality. That doesn't sound very good. So how does Jesus' way of looking at things and saying some things are sin and some things are not actually in to their benefit? Okay, so let's just, I always, you know, I was 35 years as an atheist. And so I, I always look at it from the perspective of, of a non-religious person first. Because it, it turns out if there's a good reason to believe uh, an approach, 
that as an atheist as I was, why wouldn't you accept the reality in Christianity, which actually argues for the same thing? And as, as an atheist, here's what I would have said. This is not about excluding, right? Like I want my friends and family members to flourish, to thrive, to, to actually under every human metric, do the best they can to, to, to experience the most they can in terms of wellness. That's both emotional wellness, mental wellness, and physical wellness. Mm. So when I say to somebody, hey, I, I, I think you need to stop using heroin every day, mm-hmm. it's not because I'm trying to, I, to exclude you, or it's that I, there's a behavior that you're engaged in that I know is preventing you from the most flourishing you could experience as a human being. Now, once you're convinced that there are certain metrics by which people flourish, and the data is out there. For example, young people, I don't care, and they, they've been trying for years to find some way to reverse this, this reality, but the data represents this. If you are being raised by your two biological parents in a low-conflict setting, you have got the best possible case scenario, not a low-conflict setting. In other words, your parents get along with each other, and they are your two biologicals. Now, I wasn't raised that way. Hmm. My parents divorced when I was three. My mom never remarried, so I was raised by one biological parent. And I don't have a family like that now. I have two boys that are my biological children and two girls who are, we adopted. It's better than what they were what they're experiencing before, but it would be far better if they were raised by their biological parents in a low-conflict setting. Hmm. So when I advocate for relationships that produce children are the product of two biological parents that eliminates certain other forms which isn't to say that those you might find a way but under every metric we study this kids do best they flourish best they are they have less poverty higher education less trouble in school less arrest rates mm-hmm. less teenage pregnancy less mental health less physical uh, health issues if they are raised by two biological parents in a low conflict setting so if those, if that actually is how you thrive mm-hmm. then my desire for you to experience that is not about excluding somebody it's because i love you enough to want you to flourish mm. so that's and it turns out that scripture affirms everything we know now i would have said as an atheist even though that's true i would have said well yeah okay so the ancients saw what made people flourish and they built a religion around it Mm. okay that's where you want to but i tell you what if you study what scripture teaches about relationships you will flourish Mm -hmm. if you study it and as first john says actually do it you will flourish right and if nothing else that's a start Mm. so i think that that's where i usually come at is that yeah it's not about trying to it's that uh, there are some behaviors and look, heroin use is clearly an extreme. Mm-hmm. But there are other lesser behaviors. If you just eat too much sugar, you're not going to flourish. Mm-hmm. If I tell you, hey, I want you to stop that so you can flourish, are you going to say then that I hate you or that I love you? Yeah. So there's a range of things you could do that are going to keep you from flourishing. And so what we're doing as Christians is just showing you, hey, here's a, here's how God has designed you to flourish. And you're going to have a hard time coming out from under that. And although you might be able to find some examples, hmm of people who have done it. We're talking, of course, any study only reveals, you know, majorities, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, generalities. Right. But generally, people only, people flourish under those settings, and that's what we're trying to help people see. That's so well said. Okay, so for every parent out there that they have a child, a teenager, young adult, that has walked away from faith because they find it to be too narrow, too exclusive, um, us versus them, or maybe there's even something they think, I don't even know if I agree with that or believe that anymore. 
What's the best way they can help them? Because every parent wants to logic their kid to death or give them a book and make them read it and say, oh, this will fix everything. Just read this. Yeah. Um, what, what have you noticed is the best way to help uh, kids that are kind of processing? Well, first of all, help them to understand that, that there is no view of the world that isn't exclusive and that the view they're holding, which is excluding ours, is excluding the Christian worldview. So it's not a matter of whether you can find a worldview that's more inclusive. Mm -hmm. It's about which worldview includes the right stuff, right? Yeah. Because every worldview includes something and excludes something else. But even that logical statement doesn't make a lot of sense unless you first built a relationship with your kids. Mm -hmm. So this is all about relationship building. That's so true. And you know, I've got a chapter in the next book about fathers, and, and this is really, you know, I learned this working gangs. I built a relationship with local gangsters, and I was already an old man pretty much by their standards, so I didn't have a relationship like a friend. Mm -hmm. I had a relationship like a father because I was old enough to be these people's father. Mm -hmm. so, so for me, it was about developing a paternal mentorship with young men who did not have a dad. Mm -hmm. And what I saw, regardless whether it was black, Hispanic, white, or Korean, because those are the four groups that were in our city, um, the one thing they had in common was lack of dad. Yeah, That's it, lack of dad. And, and some of these dads were living with them, but they weren't paying attention to them. Wow. Or, for example, in some of these, they were first-generation uh, uh, immigrants who came in and started a business and were wildly successful, and their families were wealthy, but they never even bothered to learn the English language. Mm. And their kids had no relationship with the dad. They're like living in two different cultures in the same house. Hmm. That's a lack of dad also. Mm -hmm. So lack of dad is not a, it's an equal opportunity stupid thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So you have to be really careful with that. But it turns out that your kids are far less likely to stray permanently from you if you can take your relationship, which you've, if you've done a good job in that, and add to it this simple thing called information. So what happens is most of the time is that you know people will have a good relationship with their kids, but they don't they can't answer their kids' questions. So they'll say, "Get Jim's book." No, don't get my book. No one's going to read my book. They don't know me. They know you. They want you to give them the answer. You master the information. And by the way, you're already doing this. You know we're here in Southern California. You know how this is. We got two of every sports team. We got the Lakers and the, the Clippers, the Rams and the Chargers. You got you know the Kings and the Ducks. You got the Angels and the, and the Dodgers. We got everything here. But you probably are a fan of one of those teams, and your kids are more likely to hmm. uh, accept your fandom because you've already transmitted that really well because you have lots of data. You talk about it at the dinner table. They know the history of the team. They know who they're going to draft next year. They know all the stats of the team. Why? Because you're geeked out on that, and you shared that with them. And so you now have passed on your fandom when, in fact, you could have passed on your faith in Christ if you had the same amount of information about that that you have about the Rams. So it turns out that we have to be, do a better job of passing on our fan, our fandom, you know, our allegiances. That's so good. You know, who is it we follow? Yeah. I follow. I've got half theology in my podcast and half sports. Yeah. And so I'm following teams and I'm following the master. So which one of those two cases do I want to be a better case maker at? So if you just have a relationship that you've developed over the years, but you actually have fanship, you know, you, I know that we're treating Jesus like, a, like we're fans of his, that's not it. I'm just saying that you are already wasting, you're doing more for stuff that doesn't matter than you're willing to do for the stuff that does. Right, right. Oh, that's so good. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about this, and I think you've already tipped your hand a little bit with some of your answer on this. But the word deconstruction has become very popular people of faith, deconstructing their faith, walking away. Is that a result of a parent that didn't have the right information? Is that a result of a parent that only had information, no relationship? 
or is it the result of uh, peer groups that people are in? You're probably going to say all of the above. But, but what, what do you see in here as to why we're so consumed with this idea of deconstructing our faith? So deconstruction is the same for every group who holds any worldview. You know, I deconstructed my atheism before I became a Christian. Hmm. So it's not as though this is unique to Christianity. Hmm. Anytime you make a serious change of worldview, you're probably deconstructing the one you held before you turned a corner. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's deconstruction is no bigger a problem for us as Christians than it is for atheists. Because I can tell you how I deconstructed my atheism. I simply went back and I looked at all the claims of atheism about the nature of the universe, and I realized that these were not consistent. And people who deconstruct their Christian faith are also tr- saying they're doing the same kind of thing. Mm. They're looking for those places in Scripture where there's inconsistencies. But a lot of what, what, what drives us is not—there's we, we, three reasons why anyone shuns the truth, right? Shun, I use that word, shun, because it helps you remember them. The first one is— uh, rational. Mm-hmm. See how I'm using that word, mm-hmm. John? I love it. So, so, and that's what people will say. Well, I just deconstructed it. It made no sense. The evidence was bad. Whatever. But the other two are actually usually the tail that wags the dog, and that is emotional. They've had an experience that they have found a grievous in some way, and they decided this is not for me because if that's what that's, these hypocrites are, I don't like these people anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's what drives people. Or volitional, they just don't want it to be true because they're enjoying the life they've constructed for themselves. Every act of deconstruction is usually married to an act of construction. You've constructed something in your personal sexual preferences, whatever your life is, that you now need to deconstruct the other side because you can't enjoy one with the other. Mm-hmm. This is why sin is at so much of, of any kind of... Let's face it, if you're going to deconstruct one direction or the other, deconstructing your atheism to Christianity is going to bring... It's a harder life. Mm-hmm. You might argue it's a right life, but you've got to control your impulses now. Mm-hmm. You've got to delay your gratification. You just can't be chasing everything you wanted to chase before. Mm-hmm. Deconstructing to atheism from Christianity is the easier life because there are no rules now. Yeah. I'm never going to feel bad about what I'm doing. So the only courageous deconstruction goes in one direction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the other, is, to me, is just moral cowardice. It's that I don't have this enough conviction of my of my beliefs to, or the beliefs of God to, to hang with it. Mm-hmm. This is the cop talking, right? Mm-hmm. The one thing that you, you hate the most on the part of cops is cowardice. Yeah. And I, I think the same thing about, about believers. We have to be courageous. And it turns out of the two ways you can deconstruct, only one is courageous. Mm. I love that. All right. Well, I want to I want to be gracious to your time because you've got a grandbaby on the way. Yes, any minute. Um, I mean, literally any, any minute, minute now. Yes. <laughs> so I'm waiting for the text. I keep on looking down to see if, we, if the, the baby's here. Um, last question, uh, and that is just out of pure curiosity. Our society has just gone crazy with true crime. We love true crime. From Netflix shows to Dateline, which I know you've been on several times, they've doubled down on murder. Everything's about an unsolved murder or perhaps even solved. Yeah. What does this say about our society that we're so obsessed with this? Well, I think um, it's not just that we are. So so like ID Channel, and I'm I'm on ID, ID Channel a lot and Reels TV and all these different networks that feature our cases. And and what we noticed is that the vast majority of viewers in those channels are female. Yep. Uh, women love true crime even more than men. And what is that about? I think a lot, a lot of it is, again, you are created in the image of your creator. And so you have certain things you can't shake 
not because you these have been adapted over time with by evolution, but because these are innate properties of your of, of your soul as a created being that you just can't shake. And one of them is a sense that there are moral truths that aren't just a matter of opinion. Mm. And that justice, moral justice, is of high value to you. That's why the word justice can leverage all kinds of stupid movements that aren't even related to justice because you have such a visceral, visceral reaction to the notion of justice. Why is that? Because you are created in the image of the one God that holds truth and grace justice and mercy in perfect balance only one being in the universe has ever done that that's yahweh and jesus when he came to, to planet earth the rest of us are unbalanced in one direction or the other hmm. but it's that sense of balancing justice and mercy which is always so um it's so pointed in homicide investigations because you have somebody with whom for whom justice needs to be applied and somebody for whom mercy needs to be shown in every case and I think it's because we were created in the image of a God who holds that in perfect balance that we are interested in those fictional accounts, those stories, those dramas that really feature that balance. Mm. And that's why I think we are interested in true crime. That's so interesting. Okay, buddy. Where can people find you? What's your website? We have a coldcasechristianity.com is where all of our stuff is up three days, three days a week. We post something there. But now we have a new website we started about two years ago um, when we started working with police couples. It's called thethinbluelife.com. Love that. Okay. Buddy, so happy for you and the, uh, the grandchild on its way and so grateful for you and all you do for so many of us. So uh, blessings to you. Hopefully we get to see you soon. Yeah, looking forward to seeing you in person soon. That'd be great. Take care. All right. Talk to you later. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Jim's just always such a blessing. Make sure you check out his website and pick up some of his resources, especially for those of you that really want to share this with somebody else, maybe a family member who's fallen away from their faith or has massive questions you don't know how to answer. Everybody loves to hear from someone who's been on Dateline, and that's Jim Wallace. Next week, we have an interview I cannot wait to share with you. Over the past decade, I have had an administrative assistant who was absolutely amazing. She has been so gracious to not just take care of our ministry, but also represent our ministry so, so well. She is a pastor herself because of the amazing job she does in taking care of others. And so many people ask me, hey, what should I look for in an administrative assistant or an executive assistant? Uh, what what do they actually provide for you? What, what, do I, what do I ask them to do? Debbie Robert is going to be with us next week to answer all of those questions. Well, thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and we'll be back next week. Until then, keep it simple. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.